This is our weekly opportunity as Jesus' people gathered at Seven Mile Road to sit under the Word. Um, We're anxious to do that and to have God shape us by what He has said as His Spirit applies it to our lives. We're stepping into a new calendar year together. Also going to spend the next three months preaching on a specific doctrine, a specific praxis. We're going to be preaching on the doctrine of and the practice of mission together. We're going to call this always being sent, always being sent. And we've got 13 weeks to dive deeply into Scripture and to think deeply together about what it means for us as Christians, as gospel communities, and as a church to live with missional intentionality in our time and our place. All right, those are some big words. We've got a lot of work to do in these three months together. Today, my task is to simply do two things with you. That's it. One is to unpack for you some of the context of our mission as the people that Jesus has here together, to talk about greater Boston as it is at the start of the new millennium, about who it is that we have been sent to. We're going to spend some time beginning there. And then two, to have all of us leaving from here asking ourselves, is my heart happy and anxious about this idea? Am I gladly on board with this biblical trajectory to seeing the people group, the Bostonians that we have been sent to meeting Jesus? Does that do anything in my heart? From here, Dan's going to preach on the end of the mission, which is the glory of God. Then I will preach on the means of accomplishing the mission, the gospel announced and heard and seen and believed. Then we're going to spend some time talking about our God-given identities as missionaries and some of the objections that we raise to that and some of the sin that cloudies and gets in the way of that. And then you're going to love this. We're going to spend the last two months together on Sundays from the Word talking about how does the mission of God intersect with my everyday life? How do these two things come together? What does it mean to be on mission as a church, at work, in my home, on my block, in these cities? in our gospel communities around the world. How do these things intersect? Right, we're praying hard that Jesus, who we love, who has saved us for his glory, would move this group here to living really well from this identity that he has given to us as sent ones who are always being sent. All right, so that's where we're going. Today is simply our context and your heart. This is going to be a very unusual 45 minutes that we have together. Instead of doing what we normally do and talking at you 
from Scripture for the whole time. I'm going to talk some first just about context and history, and then much more briefly than usual, and it's okay for one day. We're going to work from a text and just get anchored into it, but it won't be the whole time. And that's because at the end of today, we're going to watch a short, beautiful, strong film together of a church family who is trying to live as a community that is always being sent and doing it in ways that we hope to see happening in and among us in our next 10 years together. So hear the scripture with me again, and we'll pray and we'll press into it. I'll pick it up in verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived in Macedonia, from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. When they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He left there. And he went to the home of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His home was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Let's pray together. Father, be gracious to us. We could be a million places, but your love has overtaken our lives in beautiful ways. You've moved us from death to life. There's nowhere that we'd rather be than among God's people on Jesus' day, under his word, at his table, singing, praying, repenting, believing together. Would you do a great work among your people gathered this morning and everywhere this is happening across this globe? Hear my prayer. And answer, amen, amen. Okay, so let's talk context together before we get into our identity as missionaries and the end and the means and the strategy for our missional life together. We have to talk about where we are. Who is it that we have actually been sent to? So let me first nail down the two opposite extremes of context, and then we'll kind of find greater Boston on the continuum. Let me start, for example, with Tulsa, Oklahoma. I like to refer to this as the, the American buckle of the Bible belt. It stretches from Tulsa down through Dallas to Houston, at least. It's the buckle of the belt. We're going to throw a pie chart up here and just look at a couple of broad categories with you. I know that they're general summary categories, but they'll be helpful in making some sense of this. So category one is people who are locked into a church. God has been gracious to them. They've believed the gospel. They are living in a church community. Number two is people who are looking for a church. They love Jesus. They've heard the gospel. They're just in transition. They're ready to lock arms with a healthy gospel-centered church to be discipled and set to mission. Third category is people who grew up around church, although they don't attend anymore. They would tell you, yes, I am a Christian. 
If you ask them to fill out the bubbles on the sheet of what religion they are, they would check off Christian. They have heard the gospel. They actually basically assent to biblical categories and a Christian worldview. They prayed the sinner's prayer when they were little kids at Bible camp. They are not terrified by this setting right here, a preacher and a Bible and a church and a band with a bass guitar and drums. That doesn't frighten them. It is totally within the realm of possibility for them to attend a church service or to go to a church event, previously gospeled, but now de-churched is probably a good way to think about that category. And then last one, people who are not going near a church. These are not Christians at all, not even nominal in name. They have never really heard or had presented to them the beautiful, robust, biblical, orthodox gospel. They haven't seen it or heard it yet. They have never witnessed true gospel community in action. They have never really met and been connected to a legit, repentant, Jesus-loving Christian or Christian family. What they do know about Jesus and Christianity is a straw man or a caricature that has been given to them by South Park or Family Guy or Bill Maher or their atheistic religious studies professor or CNN or all those other venues. They are ungospel and they are not headed for church or church event or church service. Say like this, you have a better chance of getting me to go to a NASCAR race with you than in getting them to come to something with church labeled to it. You've got a better chance of me showing up at your Pinterest party. Do they have those? If there was such a thing as Pinterest parties, you would more likely find a Facebook picture of Matt Cruz at a Pinterest party than these folks opting into a church event or a church life. This means that all of the attractional and invitational, really well done, church-based stuff does not intersect with their lives. Okay, now here's a city like Tulsa, rough percentages, but you'll get the point. For example, this is a city where when they were in a drought, the mayor published a press release asking pastors to lead their congregations in prayer for rain. Now I love that, but that's a unique context right there, okay? If you are there, it makes sense for your church to emphasize doing mission through what we would call attractional or invitational methods. Think about it. If 50% of your context would come to hear about Jesus and needs to badly because they have faded from what they know is right, and another 10 or 15% of your context is always in transition looking for a church, then you go the field of dreams strategy, right? If you build it, they will come. Okay, this is how, for example, my little brother's church rolls 
And it is wild to behold, especially from this part of the universe. This is their sanctuary. Isn't that thing wild? Woo! I get excited just looking at that like, man. They offer services, amazing services on Saturday nights and all day on Sundays with all of the bells and the whistles and the lasers and the lamps and the lights. His youth group is 9 through 12. Twice as big as all of Seven Mile Road, all of Restoration Road, and all of Seven Mile Road Philly, all combined together. That's how big just the youth thing is. They work very hard to put on the best imaginable events and then invite people to them to hear about Jesus. I'll give you an example. This was their Christmas event. This is how it was built. This year... We are super excited to announce our all-new holiday experience called The Story of Christmas. If you've never celebrated Christmas with us before, you have to come and check this out. This event will be filled with beautiful Christmas music and some fun moments that you and your friends and your family are sure to love. This is a free event being held at church, Church on the Move in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You don't need a ticket to come, and there are several convenient times from which to choose. You feel that? I watched some of this service online. This was no candlelight service. This was a two-hour, amazing, Broadway-quality thing. And then about two-thirds of the way through, the pastor spoke really well about Jesus, and he did this altar call. I don't know if you know what that is, but they know what that is. And out came all the re-words, recommit, reinvigorate, renew, return. He said a couple of things that were very helpful and very telling. First, he talked about gospel and Christmas, and then he said, and everybody in America pretty much knows all about Jesus. Hear that? Okay, now if you replace America with Tulsa, Dallas, Houston, he's probably right. In that culture, the gospel has saturated, and that is a beautiful, beautiful reality. I love that. Then he said, Maybe you made a commitment years ago, and you've just not been faithful in your walk with God. It's time to come home. Okay, you hear that? What is that? That's what we call reminder evangelism or re-evangelism. This is engaging with and pleading with someone who already knows that they need to, to repent and return to Christ. And that's wonderful. I know that we tend to bang on that, right? Especially us proud Bostonian frontier missionaries. We shouldn't. We love the reformers here, right? That church and that pastor is doing mission in a very similar way that the reformers did. I read this fascinating paragraph this week. Listen to this. In the Reformation, the church's mission to culture was pastoral not evangelistic. Within Europe, it was assumed that the Christian story, 
and the main tenets of the Christian message were familiar. So evangelism primarily involved repeated attempts to re-energize faith and commitment that had grown lukewarm. The emphasis was on calling people to make a renewed commitment to the implications of the gospel that they had heard. Yeah. If that is who you are called to, emphasizing attractional, invitational, church event ministry and re-evangelism makes sense. So you have lots of awesome, really well done church events. Christmas Eve, Good Friday, people will come. You host Christian concerts. There's such a thing, by the way. And you bring in names like David Crowder, and you have the gospel be attached to that. You minister to people through rites of passage. They're getting married. They want to do it in a church. You gospel them. They had a baby. They want that baby to be christened or baptized or dedicated. You gospel them. They're dying. They need a pastor in a church to be God, they're looking for you to be there with them in those rites of passage and those moments. But what happens when no one in your context is interested in any of that? What happens if either the gospel has never even reached your context or reached it generations ago? And its reality in people's lives has faded far away. What happens when Christendom, a shared culture that assumes biblical principles and biblical truth, poof, is gone? What happens when your context is not looking for a church to get married in or a pastor to shepherd them through that? The last 10 weddings that Grace and I have gone to, five of them, there hasn't even been a church involved. What do you do in a context where isn't thinking, I should get married in a church? What happens when your context doesn't really care about gospeling, christening, dedicating their newborn babies? What happens if no one in your culture knows or cares who David Crowder is? What happens... When your culture suddenly hates every semblance of Christmas and wants to eradicate the name of Christ from the end of December, not come to a Christmas Eve service. What happens when no one in your culture is interested in Christianity or its church or its events? Well, now, for example, you are in Turkey. Here's Turkey's pie chart. You can't see the locked into a church percent. There are Christians there, about 200,000 of them. But it represents three hundredths of a percent. The other 99.7% of people in Turkey are ungospeled, mostly secular or practicing Muslims. Now you're in a context where nobody prayed the sinner's prayer at Bible camp when they were kids. No one's been to a Bible camp. No one's seen a Bible. And they don't know who Chris Tomlin or David Crowder or John Calvin or Billy Graham or Mark Driscoll is. 
They don't even know who the Jesus that's been revealed in the Bible is. To our Christmas story events, don't fly here. An invitation to a Christian worship service doesn't make any sense. The context is different, and so mission looks different. The emphasis is different. I got this beautiful message from a friend who is working to advance the gospel in this country among these people groups. He said, last year, I trained some Americans, and we saw two people come to Christ. And right now, we are discipling these men with the hopes of planting a church there. It's going well, but discipling in a shame-honor culture has its hurdles, so please pray. Basically, Turkey is tough soil, but I do believe God is ready to go large here on his terms. Most of the youth that I deal with are secular Muslims, meaning even if they profess to be atheists, they see themselves as Muslims culturally, which makes talking about Jesus strange at best. How many people have had that exact experience with your neighbors and your friends and coworkers? Gospel and Jesus is not some smooth conversation. Strange at best. Then he describes how he does mission, and it sounds nothing like the people that I adore in Tulsa. He says, we're on campus or in cafes and pubs regularly. We are also starting a Friday night lights meeting every Friday night with any of our football players that want to come to watch the TV show and discuss the issues in the show. This may sound cheesy, these were his words, but the football players love that show and much of what they know about Christianity The only thing they know about Christianity comes from watching this show. These are lost people. Do you feel the difference here? When the only Jesus that your context knows is the one that has been syndicated through a spoofy show about Texas, you're you're not in mid-America anymore. Okay, now what about us? Here's our pie chart. You guys know the stats, right? Less than 2% of Bostonians are locked into gospel-centered, Jesus-preaching churches. There's a ton of Christian memory and Christian history here, but it is fading fast, much faster than church people tend to think. You guys see churches and you go, there must be some kind of a good Christian presence Walk into the churches, the ones that still happen to be churches, and there is no one there. There's no one there. The big thing that I want you to see is this. We have to get it. It is more likely that your Christian, uh, that your Bostonian neighbor has more in common with a Muslim in the middle of Turkey than they do with a Christian in the middle of of these United States. We're talking 80% of Bostonians are not notionally Christian. They're not nominally Christian. They're not religious people who can be reached and gospeled 
through reminder evangelism or through church activities or church events. They're, they're not here today. There are 3.2 million Bostonians who have no contact with formal church. It does not intersect with their lives. My block is a very simple example. Your block is probably the same way. We're on a dead-end street, so it was easy to do the math. There's eight households. One of them, simply and purely by God's grace and for the sake of his mission, if I could believe it, are a part of a gospel-centered church loved by Jesus and his people. One of them does go to church on Sundays. The other six households have no intersection of their life and Jesus, his gospel, his people, his mission, his church, none. And it is not on their radar. They're not interested. They are very nice, secular, wealthy, comfortable, sophisticated, late modern Americans. You can knock on all six doors and say, David Crowder, and they will just go, Crowd did? I don't, is this a game? What? They don't know him. And they don't know who Ezekiel or Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel are. And they don't know the story of Saul of Tarsus. And they don't know J.I. Packer. And they don't know what the gospel is. The bits and pieces, but never given to them robustly. These are your neighbors. These are the new Bostonians. And they are who Seven Mile Road was birthed and exists to engage and advance the gospel among. They don't know about Jesus. They don't know about church. Perfect example, Grace and I were getting signed up at the YMCA, and we were checking in about a clergy discount. And all three of the young women who were working looked at me and had no idea what the word clergy is or was or represents. You go, Young Men's Christian Association. Do you feel the fading? That is where we live. That is who we are sent to. Okay, now there's three ways to respond to this new contextual reality that we find ourselves in. One is this, to hate it and to fight it and to complain about it and to bemoan it and to be against this whole context. You know, yes, there are many places where we will need to differentiate ourselves from culture. We're going to talk all about how that is missional. And we will need to stand against the apostles of sin in our day, of course. But that cannot be our default, everyday response to our context. It can't. Number two is to retreat and to pull back and to disassociate and to find a way to live in a very nice very safe, very comfortable, very convenient Christian ghetto. And yes, there are times when we desperately need to be among God's people and refreshed in the grace of God, like this here, under word, around his table, with each other. This is crucial. But we can't retreat into this in our everyday as the pattern of our lives from the bad world that is out there. You know this. Number three is to engage. 
and to evangelize and to love and to serve and to pray and to gospel and to work hard so that what Psalm 67 says, Dan read it to begin the service, about all the peoples of the world would be true about my people, about your people, about our people. Of course, if you are here, you know that that's what we're doing. That's what we're going for. Okay, now the question that is before us is, given our context, not Boston in 1776 or Boston in 1850 or Boston in 1950, but Boston in 2012, what does it look like to do number three really well together? If Seven Mile Road exists to see that 80% come to know the glory of the grace of the gospel of God, to hear it announced and to see it lived out and become a part of a community like this, living lives of repentance and faith and obedience, how do we do that? And the answer, and it is a very hard answer for American church people to hear, is you have to do it a lot more like you would in Turkey than you would in Tulsa. All right, let's talk about our history for a minute because we have some, by God's grace. Twelve years we have been at this church planting thing together. Am I still standing? Holy cow. God is good. I'm going to talk in very broad brushes, but here's a summary. Again, context with you for the next three months, for our next 10 years together. Basically, two big seasons in the life of our church. The first was 2002-ish to 2006-ish. We were brand new, and this start season in the life of our church was all about us connecting with the 80% of people through, not that we did it this way, but in hindsight, an attractional strategy with almost no discipleship. That's the way that I would summarize our first four years together. Here's what it looked like. For four years, I met and invited hundreds of people into the life of Seven Mile Road. I think there was one week where Teresa and I ran into each other like six times. She was going shopping. There I was. She was at the gym. There I was. She was at City Hall. There I was. You're planting a church? You just go meet everybody that you can. And everywhere in Malden that I could go, I was meeting people and introducing them into the existence of a new church and said, come. When I talked with them, I was basically inviting them to come hear me preach poor sermons that have never been recorded and don't exist anywhere, to hear John Frederick play crazy, amazing music, and to meet a tiny band of people who loved Jesus and were willing to become friends with them. That was the invitation. Come, watch, maybe make a friend or two. That's what it meant to be Seven Mile Road at the time. There was no smaller communities yet. If you got discipled, it was just because myself or one of our people was doing it with you, ad hoc. We connected with a ton of folks who were a part of this 80% Nowhere near even thinking about Jesus or church. No idea about gospel or Bible. Grace and I sat at a living room table, had dining room table, had a meal with someone, and I said, you know how Peter denied Jesus three times? 
And everybody in the family, grandparents, parents, and children, looked at me. Nobody had any clue about Peter denying Jesus or the number three. No clue. This is who we were connecting with. I don't know why they came, but a bunch of them came. None of you know too many of them because most of them didn't stay. Mira's, Casey's, Belanger's, Cravatas, I got a whole list. More names than I can remember, but we got after them. And God in his grace did some beautiful work in those years. The church hovered at around 40 people, grand total. Half of them were from the 80%. That was the first phase of the life of our church. Then over the next four years, things changed. Our Sunday event got much better. Our preaching grew up. The music was still sick. That means good. Still great. Our liturgy finally got biblical. There was actually purpose to what we were doing when we gathered. And we began doing soul care and community much, much better. Kevin launched soul care communities. There's the two words. And our identity as a straight-talking, gospel-centered, theologically reformed, Boston-sounding, complementarian, Jesus-loving, sin-confessing, life-sharing church was formed in those years. Also, context, very important for us to note, in those years, we were the only church doing anything like that within a giant radius of these cities. If you went to the Acts 29 website in those days, there was only three places for you to go to church in the network in New England. Manchester, New Hampshire, or Concord, New Hampshire? Uh, New Hampshire, that's all I have to say. So that was out. Portland, Maine, which is great for a vacation, but, and then this seven miles, seven, eight miles road thing. That was it. Those are the only churches. Praise Jesus, this is not true anymore. In the last five years, I don't know if you know this, but churches that share our heart and our DNA have been planted in Revere, Eastie, Stoneham, Woburn, Beverly, Danvers, Medford, Saugus, Wakefield, and like 10 in Somerville and Cambridge. That was not the case five years ago, and so here's what happened with us. We began to connect very, very rapidly with the looking for a church or the previously been gospeled but am now de-churched chunks of the pie chart. These were people who were new in town and looking to be a part of a healthy, Bible-loving church. They were friends of ours and friends of theirs who knew that they should be at church and needed someone to reinvigorate and remind them of the realities of the gospel. And there were some folks who were brand new to Jesus, but mostly it was the 20%. That's some of you. Praise God. You know the other names, Hudson's, Horns, Hamilton's, King's, Smith's, Brodeur's, Thompson's, Moran's, Bennett's, Coe's, half a dozen seminary families, Gordon College kids. You feel that? And what happened? Boom, we ran out of space completely. And all that was good. There was so much beautiful gospel work that happened in that time together. And finally, the church became sustainable and healthy. Then we arrived at a fork in the road in 2011. 
do we continue on that trajectory and find a bigger space and keep building a church that obviously had become good at attraction and soul care and community, but in the fray was tending to fade away from the original mission to folks who didn't know Jesus. Again, not on purpose, not as a strategy. That's just the way things flow. Or do we take what God had done among us and who we had become and continue doing all of that but find a way to turn its shoulders again toward mission among the 80%. You guys who are here know that we chose B. More than anything else, more than being about this crazy, cheap, religiously zoned already space opportunity, more than being about a wise financial decision, more than doing multi-site because that's the cool thing to do now, more than spaces for emerging leadership, more than any of these other things, the decision that we made together in 2011, remember, to not tell Joey, sorry, buddy, but we can't plant the church so close because we're trying to grow this bigger and better, and to not move everybody into one space where the Sunday event could be wonderfully done better than before, but to do the things that we're trying to do together. We did it because we do not want to swing and miss on the 80%. That's why we did it. And whether or not it was the right decision or the best decision, we're working all of these things out together. I love that you guys are speaking into the way that this church is progressing toward its future with us. That's so fun for us. But I want you to know that the decision was made because we want to see the gospel advanced here among the people who have not been gospeled. We didn't want to simply go for bigger and better if bigger and better leaves 80% unengaged. Lots of our contemporary friend churches are doing this. Focus on the preacher and the band and the vibe and the space and the coffee bar and the concerts and the events. It is still possible to grow a big church from the 20%. You know that, right? If anyone knows that, we know that. There's a lot of bodies in the 20%. That's not why we exist. Of course, we're going to do Sundays super well together and take this seriously and word and sacrament and gathering. Of course, we're going to take the central realities of discipline and pastors and members serious in the life of our church. Of course. But our neighbors are not here, and they're not showing up here on their own. And we as a church need to have our shoulders pointed to our ungospeled neighbors. We're going to live like that. That's what we're preaching on. What would it look like for us to get a vision for that and as individuals and gospel communities and a church to live as a people who have an identity of always being sent, sent to those who need Christians and gospel and gospel community in their lives. It can't look like a church in Tulsa. It can't even look like the four fun years that we had together. It's got to look different. Okay, now before getting into the theology and the praxis of all of that, we got three months to do that. We need to start here. We need to start with our hearts 
And as we begin thinking through these things afresh and anew together, ask ourselves, as Seven Mile Road, is our heart ready? That's why we read from Acts 18 today. There's a lot of things going on when you read Scripture that we encourage you to be thinking about, right? We tell you to think about the words themselves. The Spirit inspired the words. Think on their meaning. We tell you to think on the big idea of the text that we're preaching through and you're looking through. What, what's the main thing that I can take from this? We teach you to make connections between themes and passages. We teach you to see Jesus in every text of Scripture. Another thing that we teach you to do is to say, when you read your Bible, let your Bible read you. When you read your Bible, let your Bible read you. What we mean is pay attention to how your soul responds or doesn't respond to the things that God did and God said. If the Holy Spirit is involved in your reading of Scripture, you, your reading will generate response in you that is telling of where you need to repent, where you need to wake up, what God may be speaking to you and to us and to your gospel community. For example, the last time that I preached, I was doing the text on Herod slaughtering the children. And you'll remember, I couldn't even read that scripture during the service without weeping. All week long, every time I came to that text, I kept going, no, 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 please don't give that order, please. That's letting the Bible read me and move me and see where my heart was that week thinking about this guy walking through this elementary school and shooting children. You see how the Bible read me that week? That's how we want to read the Bible, and that's what I want to do with this text together. Here's my question. What happened in your soul when you heard Dan and then me and everyone in here out loud read Acts 18, verse 5? If your heart did not race when we read that, something might be wrong in your heart. It's just a simple, brief narrative of Paul planting a church in the city of Corinth. Whenever you see Corinth in your Bible, just think Boston. When you see Corinthian, just replace it with Bostonian. Same joint, same hang-ups, same idols. The Corinthians were totally ungospel when Paul showed up in their city. They knew nothing about the older covenant scriptures of God, nothing about the promises of God, the character of God, the law of God, none of it, just like your neighbors. Calvin says, it is well known what a rich city Corinth was, how populous, how greatly given to pleasure. An old proverb doth testify that it was sumptuous and full of riot, quote, all men cannot go to Corinth. In other words, Corinth was so rich and so sexy and so sophisticated and so intelligent and so depraved and so worldly that somebody from the woods wouldn't survive. Does that sound familiar? Kids come to BU and go home in like two weeks because they can't take Commonwealth Ave and the debauchery and the intelligence and the sophistication and the wealth of Boston. This was Corinth, here's the text that we read together. I need you to hear it again. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word 
doing gospel ministry, testifying to the Jews first always that the Christ was Jesus. When they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. I tried. I tried. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. He left there, went to the house, the home of a neighbor, a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of our God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And now here's our verse. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. What happens when you read that text of Scripture? What happens in your heart? Does your heart just start racing and beating a little bit faster? Whoa. Do tears fill your eyes when you think about the Spirit moving in this way? Does that text of Scripture maybe bring you to your knees begging, God, you got to do that with Bostonians. You got to do that on my block. You got to do that at my job. You got to do that in these cities. This happened. This happens. This has to happen. You got to do this. Is your heart excited about the mission of God to those who have not yet been gospeled? Later in the text, Paul sees a vision. God says, fear not. Don't be afraid, but go on speaking and don't be silent. You have to remember, Paul had been beat up the last couple of places that he was, and so he was looking over his shoulder going, man, if I open my mouth about Jesus, what's going to happen next? In his grace, in his love, the Lord visits him and says, that's not going to happen here. I've got some time for you. Be bold. He says, I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. When you hear that the Lord showed up and said those words to Paul, what happens in your heart? Does it race? Wait a minute. God says that kind of thing to people who are planting churches? You mean God might show up and say to me, there are many in my block, at my workplace, in my kids' school, in these cities who are his? You mean he's with us as we begin to gospel people? There are those who will believe and be baptized? If you just pass by scripture like that and then go have your cat and crunch, something's wrong. Those text of scripture is supposed to stop us to say, whoa, I want that. Whatever it takes, I want to live like that. So we're going to finish by watching a quick video. No idea why I just talked so long to you, but thanks for sticking with me. I want you to do two things as you watch this with us. We're going to put this up for you guys to watch in your gospel communities and to have access to. Thank you, Jesus, for the World Wide Web. Advance your gospel through it. Two things I want you to pay attention to while we're watching, okay? So just, a, just a picture to be helpful to you of a church community living on mission to their neighbors. One is, don't get thrown off the fact, by the fact that this is Seattle, Tacoma, up in the Northwest. Never been there, don't intend to go. 
Don't get thrown off by the fact that everybody's really, really white and everybody's drinking coffee the whole entire time. Let it go. Two things I want you to pay attention to. They are heart-related. If Jesus can capture the heart of the 107 miles who are members here. Wow. Two quotes I don't want you to miss. One, there's a woman sitting on her porch. She says, do I really believe that being a missionary is important? We really want to see people worship Jesus. It's that important. It's like everything. Watch her say that. See if your heart is stirred to say, me too. And at the very, very end, the pastor of this church just begins to weep. And he says, it is hard for me to walk through my city and to think about how many people don't understand the love that God has for them. That's what I'm getting at with you. If it's easy for you to walk through these cities and not be anxious and hopeful and broken and saying, let me spend myself and let my church get its shoulders and spend itself to live well before them, something's wrong. So let's watch this together, and then at the end I'll pray, and then we'll come to Jesus' table and sing and beg him for grace. All right, let's do that together. missionaries here versus thinking only missionaries go somewhere else and that actually that mind shift shifts people in the church significantly to start thinking I think more appropriately about what it means to be the church that you're always being sent first started SOMA, it was just my wife and I, and um, we pulled together a group of people that were some from past relationships that wanted to be a part of a church that lived life on mission in the everyday, not just life together on Sunday for a couple hours. Looking at what it would be to be God's people wherever we're at, Paul describes the church and he says Christ is the head of the church, which is his body in which he fills all in all, and that word body is SOMA. And so for us, this picture of what would it look like to be Jesus' body filling the city, filling every place that we're in with his presence, that's really what we saw. That, that's, that's what we believe the church to be. communities sit down and identify who is it we believe God sent us to or what place has he sent us to and how are we going to radically reorient our lives for the sake of reaching those people. Our day-to-day, -day, our week, looks is shaped by that covenant. The goal is to see it in the, in the flow of life. Currently, our mission of community is made up of you know, Clay and Christy, who are friends of ours that we got to meet through our kids going to the same school, and Jim and Carrie Crabb, our neighbors from right around the corner. Nikki, our neighbor, uh, a widow lady for 15 years now. Matt and 
Chelsea are more mature believers who've joined us, and now I'm trying to train Matt to eventually lead his own missional community. And Ian and Alyssa are a couple that joined us, and in a lot of ways we're disenfranchised with the church. Paige and Adam will probably be starting their own missional community in the next few months. And then, of course, all the slew of kids that are connected to all those people are a part of it as well. We love one another like brothers and sisters, and we love those we're being sent to as though they're the lost children of God. Our Sunday gathering, that's what we call it, we call it a gathering, because we really believe it's the gathering of the church. We don't believe the Sunday is the church. We believe that people are the church, and that we should gather the church together regularly. And so we gather together weekly for that. Uh, our hope and our purpose in it is that we would exhort people to, to the gospel, both to believe it as well as to live their lives in light of it. We also have communion every week where we encourage people in mission communities to come together after they hear the gospel proclaimed again through the text and celebrate Jesus. I would say one of, one of the things that I'm really hoping for for every person in a missional community is that they could actually be the church without me, that they would get to experience what it means to be the people of God all week without necessarily needing to be at a meeting on Sunday. This is not just an act. This is your life. It's, it's radically different. The reason why I'm, I'm asking that question is because I, it's, it seems as though oftentimes we're told, don't be a man, don't be strong, don't be, you know, all the things. That I began to see what Jeff was giving himself to and some of the emerging leaders. I began to notice just how much he opened his house up and how many of the other guys were giving up so much of their time. It, it wasn't just a meeting. And I was, that was the other thing that frightened me. I was like, oh my God. I told Jeff when I was like, this seems like it's really going to take your, it takes all of your life. Like, this isn't just an event. But man, this is like, this has taste and flavor to when Christ first broke into my heart. This is, this is submitting my life. I remember thinking back to how I was pushing against this emphasis in missionary work and, and at that time just feeling very convicted. I was like, I'm talking to the very people that don't know Jesus. I'm going to them. I'm reaching them. I'm pursuing them. You know, very much corresponding to how God pursued me and reached out to me and chased after me. There is a reorientation that needs to happen and I'm scared. And I also see that this reorientation is the gospel. It's this is what belief is about. This is what, what it means to say, Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Savior. You could actually have a Bible study and be unfaithful to the Scriptures. So oftentimes Bible studies stop. They don't actually create the church or lead to effective and healthy church, they often think that the goal was the study of the Bible instead of becoming a healthy family uh, on mission. If you don't have mission, that will be an unhealthy family eventually because there'll be no reproduction, there'll be no multiplication. And Yeah, we study the Bible, yeah, we're a small group, but we believe that we should be sharing the gospel, making disciples, multiplying out and expanding to the point that we reach the nations. I think multiplication is at the very heart of who we are. God built it in the very fabric of creation. Jesus says, make disciples, and then he teach them to teach others to do it as well. 
Healthy disciples make more disciples. Healthy leaders raise up more leaders. Healthy churches plant more churches. And if you don't have multiplication at the end of what you're supposed to do, you won't actually do what you're supposed to do. That's what I'm convinced of. Um, and most churches have settled with addition. And a lot of churches have just become orphanages. They know how to have babies, and they have a couple dads and moms for all the babies, but not nearly enough to care for them well, and they don't send them off to start new families. So it's a perpetual orphanage that they've created. And I think a church committed to multiplication will be committed, will have great leaders, ultimately, because we'll have to train them up to raise their own family someday. You don't have to be a superstar to plant that kind of church. You can be a normal person. And, um, and hopefully then it builds up around normal people and you have a church made up of a bunch of normal people that have spectacular lives because of Jesus. You know, every time that a group multiplies, it, there's a bit of death that happens, but it opens up space for more people to hear good news, to see community, and, and to be loved. And, that, and that's ultimately what's, what's important. True me, the inner man, right. wants to lead, and I want to be on the front lines and live life that's dangerous and just on the edge of crazy. It really has made me go, okay, do I really believe that being a missionary is important? And I think that we're seeing that it is, that like we, we really want to be missional, you know, we really want to see people worship Jesus. It's that important, like it's, it's everything. Do you really think that Jesus came to die uh, to give us more than a you know, great sermon and some good music on Sunday morning? Uh, he, he died so that our whole life could be restored uh, to God, the Son of God, a, a place that's a people chosen by God to live in this world. That looks messy and it's uncomfortable and it's scary, especially when God calls you to lead and step out and trust Him. But that's, it's beautiful. I don't I treat you as hallowed. So this prayer also leads me to, to want to repent and, and return to you. The gospel comes to bear in all parts of your life as you're, you're living in community. a couple of years into this and, and only a couple of years into my belief for that matter Jeff the way he handled it with me is he wasn't like coming in for the one-two knockdown punch and um, when we talked about sports and just you name it just normal guy stuff the way I view this community now that I've become a believer and a part of a, of a group of people on mission has has changed you become vested in something bigger than yourself now I have a deeper, far deeper relationship um, with my neighborhood. There's a bond there that I think that um, never will be broken. Taking it out of the living room and getting out in your community and actually doing it. Um, and, and I love that because talk, talk gets old after a while.
one particular neighbor we have, um, she's an elderly woman. She's lived in her home for, gosh, it's been 17 years since her husband passed away. She has been a recluse. You could tell she was just very lonely. This one day, my daughter's napping upstairs and I hear this knock on the door. And I came down and it was her and she was in tears. We sat out on the front porch in the porch swing and she poured her heart out to me for three hours we talked. And at the end I asked her if I could pray with her and she said that would be wonderful. This kind of began our relationship with her. God really gave me a gracious heart for her to see this is it. This is what missional living is about. It, it's not this nice, clean, tidy, wipe my hands at the end of the day and push people out and live my own separate life. It becomes part of the fabric of who you are. And now I can honestly say she feels like part of the family. Happy birthday, dear Nikki. Happy birthday to you. So we're in the backyard of uh, our neighbor's house, uh, Nikki. This whole back area that we're working on was completely full of blackberry bushes. Two cars were buried in the back of it. You couldn't walk through it. And the, actually, the blackberry bushes were growing up half the height of the house. So what we're doing right now, this is probably the, the third third year of us planting a garden. And our missional community is just saying, let's care for Nikki this way, but let's also care for our neighborhood because this is a great way for us to have the neighbors come together and serve with us. It's also a great way for us to start giving away the produce that we're going to be uh, seeing grow this summer. For us, when we do this kind of work externally, it's a way of showing what the kingdom of God looks like when it breaks into someone's life, that there's a process of restoration that's going on. And so that's what we're hoping for all of us, that all of us, in a sense, are going through this process of getting our lives cleaned up by the gospel. I think one of the most powerful apologetics of the gospel is when a group of people love one another, live in unity together in the midst of a broken, dark, depraved world, and they don't think that they have to remove themselves from the world to be sanctified because they believe the gospel is powerful enough to sanctify them in the middle of a broken world. When I think about my city, not just, not just this city, but all the cities, and if for some reason God's given me a heart for our country, so I think about all the cities this way. And I, I mean, I tear up often when I think about the loss in our city and I think about the lost in our country and I pray for them and that you know, just breaks my heart. It's hard for me sometimes to walk through my city and think of how many people just don't understand the love that God has for them. And that grips me and it compels me and it motivates me. I mean, I think about my neighbors that way. And, my, you know, my kids, we pray for them, and, and it's hard. It's hard for me to, to think that they've rejected Christ, at least at this point in their life. And, uh, but I'm not going to give up, because His love is worth me doing everything, so that they'll know it. My exhortation to church planters, if they don't have that kind of love for the people God's put around them, they need to ask God to give them a bigger heart. Because this isn't about them. It's not about, about their church or about their success. It's about God's glory and 
lost people who don't know the love of the Father. Pray together. Father, whatever our church becomes, I'm begging you to have it be about the glory of God and lost people coming to see it and taste it and believe it. I pray that in your grace, not out of any kind of silly religious guilt, that in your grace, you would make it hard for us to live in these cities and to see so many who have not seen and heard the good news of the gospel. I pray that you would teach us how to walk in step with the gospel, to have hearts that are actually glad to be generous and sacrificial and selfless as we live in unity and community together for the good of all peoples and these peoples. I pray that you would do something great, not so that we could take a picture of it, but so that lost people would come to see and hear and believe and be baptized into Christ and live forever with us, reveling in his grace and his glory. Every penny that we have, every inch of this building, every relationship that we have with those who are in influence, every talent that we have, every home and condo and apartment that's represented in this room, every dollar we have individually, everything we have is yours and we belong to you and we long for you to put it to use for your glory, for your mission, for your son, for the city that's coming. Holy Spirit of God, do whatever you have to to get us there to go.